Chapter Twenty Nine of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Belinda by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter Twenty Nine. A Jew. In the silence of the night, when the hurry of action was over, and the enthusiasm of generosity began to subside. The words which had escaped from Mr. Vincent in the paroxysm of despair and rage, the words, Belinda loves you, recurred to Clarence Hervey, and it required all his power over himself to banish the sound from his ear and the idea from his mind. He endeavoured to persuade himself that these words were dictated merely by sudden jealousy and that there could be no real foundation for the assertion. Perhaps this belief was a necessary support to his integrity. He reflected that, at all events, his engagement with Virginia could not be violated. His proffered services to Mr. Vincent could not be withdrawn. He was firm and consistent. Before two o'clock the next day, Vincent received from Clarence this short note. Enclosed is Mrs. Luttridge's acknowledgment that she has no claims upon you in consequence of what passed last night. I said nothing about the money she had previously won. As I understand, you have paid it. The lady fell into fits, but it would not do. The husband attempted to bully me. I told him I should be at his service, after he had made the whole affair public by calling you out. I would have seen you myself this morning, but that I am engaged with lawyers and marriage settlements. Yours sincerely, Clarence Hervey. Overjoyed at the sight of Mrs. Luttridge's acknowledgment, Vincent repeated his vow never more to hazard himself in her dangerous society. He was impatient to see Belinda, and full of generous and grateful sentiments. In his first moment of joy, he determined to conceal nothing from her, to make at once the confession of his own imprudence, and the eulogism of Clarence Hervey's generosity. He was just setting out for Twickenham, when he was sent for by his uncle, Governor Montford, who had business to settle with him, relative to his West India estates. He spent the remainder of the morning with his uncle, and there he received a charming letter from Belinda. That letter, which she had written and sent, whilst Lady Delacour was reading Clarence Hervey's packet, it would have cured Vincent of jealousy, even if he had not, in the interim, seen Mr. Hervey, and learnt from him the news of his approaching marriage. Miss Portman, at the conclusion of her letter, informed him that Lady Delacour purposed being in Berkeley Square the next day, that they were to spend a week in town on account of Mrs. Margaret Delacour, who had promised her ladyship a visit, and to go to Twickenham would be a formidable journey to an infirm old lady who seldom stirred out of her house. Whatever displeasure Lady Delacour felt towards her friend Belinda, on account of her coldness to Mr. Hervey, and her steadiness to Mr. Vincent, had by this time subsided. Angry people who express their passion, as it has been justly said, always speak worse than they think. This was usually the case with her ladyship. The morning after they arrived in town, she came into Belinda's room with an air of more than usual sprightliness and satisfaction. "'Great news! Great news! Extraordinary news! But it is very imprudent to excite your expectations, my dear Belinda.' "'Pray, did you hear a wonderful noise in the square a little while ago?' "'Yes. I thought I heard a great bustle, 
but marriott appeased my curiosity by saying that it was only a battle between two dogs it is well if this battle between two dogs do not end in a duel between two men said lady delacour this prospect of mischief seems to have put your ladyship in wonderfully good spirits said belinda smiling but what do you think i have heard of mr vincent continued lady delacour that miss annabella luttridge is dying for love of him or of his fortune knowing as i do the vanity of mankind i suppose that your mr vincent all perfect as he is was flattered by the little coquette and perhaps he condescends to repay her in the same coin i take it for granted for i always fill up the gaps in a story my own way i take it for granted that mr vincent got into some entanglement with her and that this has been the cause of the quarrel with the aunt that there has been a quarrel is certain for your friend juba told marriott so his master swore that he would never go to mrs luttridge's again and this morning he took the decisive measure of sending to request that his dog might be returned juba went for his namesake miss annabella luttridge was the person who delivered up the dog and she desired the black to tell his master with her compliments that juba's collar was rather too tight and she begged that he would not fail to take it off as soon as he could perhaps my dear you are as simple as the poor negro and suspect no finesse in this message miss luttridge aware that the faithful fellow was too much in your interests to be either persuaded or bribed to carry a billet doux from any other lady to his master did not dare to trust him upon this occasion but she had the art to make him carry her letter without his knowing it colin malliard vulgarly called blind man's buff was some time ago a favourite play among the parisian ladies now hide and seek will be brought into fashion i suppose by the fair annabella judge of her talents for the game by this instance she hid her bed at doux within the lining of juba's collar the dog unconscious of his dignity as an ambassador or rather as charged the affairs set out on his way home as he was crossing berkeley square he was met by sir philip badley and his dog the baronet's insolent favourite bit the black heels juba the dog resented the injury immediately and a furious combat ensued in the height of the battle juba's collar fell off sir philip bradley i spied the paper that was sewed to the lining and seized upon it immediately the negro caught hold of it at the same instant the baronet swore the black struggled the baronet knocked him down the great dog left his canine antagonist that moment flew at your baronet and would have eaten him up at three mouthfuls if sir philip had not made good his retreat to dangerfield's circulating library the negro's head was terribly cut by the sharp point of a stone and his ankle was sprained but as he has just told me he did not feel this till afterward he started up and pursued his master's enemy sir philip was actually reading miss luttridge's billet doux aloud when the black entered the library he reclaimed his master's property with great intrepidity and a gentleman who was present took his part immediately in the meantime lord delacour who had been looking at the battle from our breakfast-room window determined to go over to dangerfields to see what was the matter and how all this would end he entered the library just as the gentleman who had volunteered in favour of poor juba was disputing with sir philip the bleeding negro told my lord in as plain words as he could the cause of the dispute and lord delacour who to do him justice is a man of honour joined instantly in his defence the baronet thought proper at length to submit 
and he left the field of battle without having anything to say for himself but damn very extraordinary damn or words to that effect now lord delacour besides being a man of honour is also a man of humanity i know that i cannot oblige you more my dear belinda than by seasoning my discourse with a little conjugal flattery my lord was concerned to see the poor black writhing in pain and with the assistance of the gentleman who had joined in his defence he brought juba across the square to our house guess for what to try upon the strained ankle an infallible quack balsam recommended to him by the dowager lady boucher i was in the hall when they brought the poor fellow in mariette was called mrs mariette cried my lord pray let us have lady boucher's infallible balsam this instant had you but seen the eagerness of his face or heard the emphasis with which he said infallible balsam you must let me laugh at the recollection one human smile must pass and be forgiven the smile may be the more readily forgiven said belinda since i am sure you are conscious that it reflected almost as much upon yourself as upon lord delacour why yes belief in a quack doctor is full as bad as belief in a quack balsam i allow your observation is so malicious because so just that to punish you for it i will not tell you the remainder of my story for a week to come and i assure you that the best part of it i have left untold to return to our friend mr vincent could you but know what reasons i have at this instant for wishing him in jamaica you would acknowledge that i am truly candid in confessing that i believe my suspicions about e o were unfounded and i am truly generous in admitting that you are right to treat him with justice this last enigmatical sentence belinda could not prevail upon lady delacour to explain in the evening mr vincent made his appearance lady delacour immediately attacked him with raillery on the subject of the fair annabella he was rejoiced to receive that her suspicions took this turn and that nothing relative to the transaction in which clarence hervey had been engaged had transpired vincent wavered in his resolution to confess the truth to belinda though he had determined upon this in the first moment of joyful enthusiasm yet the delay of four-and-twenty hours had made a material change in his feelings his most virtuous resolves were always rather the effect of sudden impulse than of steady principle but when the tide of passion had swept away the landmarks he had no method of ascertaining the boundaries of right and wrong upon the present occasion his love for belinda confounded all his moral calculations one moment his feelings as a man of honour forbid him to condescend to the meanness of dissimulation but the next instant his feelings as a lover prevailed and he satisfied his conscience by the idea that as his vow must preclude all danger of his return to the gaming-table in future it would only be creating an unnecessary alarm in belinda's mind to speak to her of his past imprudence his generosity at first revolted from the thought of suppressing those praises of clarence hervey which had been so well deserved but his jealousy returned to combat his first virtuous impulse he considered that his own inferiority must by comparison appear more striking to his mistress and he sophistically persuaded himself that it would be for her happiness to conceal the merits of a rival to whom she could never be united in this vacillating state of mind he continued during the greatest part of the evening about half an hour before he took his leave 
lady delacour was called out of the room by mrs marriott left alone with belinda his embarrassment increased and the unsuspecting kindness of her manner was to him the most bitter reproach he stood in silent agony whilst in a playful tone she smiled and said where are your thoughts mr vincent if i were of a jealous temper i should say with the fair annabella you would say wrong then replied mr vincent in a constrained voice he was upon the point of telling the truth but to gain a reprieve of a few minutes he entered into a defence of his conduct towards miss lutwidge the sudden return of lady delacour relieved him from his embarrassment and they conversed only on general subjects during the remainder of the evening and he at last departed secretly rejoicing that he was as he fancied under the necessity of postponing his explanation he even thought of suppressing the history of his transaction with mrs lutwidge he knew that his secret was safe with clarence hervey mrs lutwidge would be silent for her own sake and neither lady delacour nor belinda had any connection with her society a few days afterward mr vincent went to gray the jeweller for some trinkets which he had bespoken lord delacour was there speaking about the diamond ring which gray had promised to dispose of for him whilst his lordship and mr vincent were busy about their own affairs sir philip badley and mr rochfort came into the shop sir philip and mr vincent had never before met lord delacour to prevent him from getting into a quarrel about a lady who was so little worth fighting for as miss annabella lutridge had positively refused to tell mr vincent what he knew of the affair or to let him know the name of the gentleman who was concerned in it the shopman addressed mr vincent by his name and immediately sir philip whispered to rochfort that mr vincent was the master of the black vincent who unluckily overheard him instantly asked lord delacour if that was the gentleman who had behaved so ill to his servant lord delacour told him that it was now of no consequence to inquire if said his lordship either of these gentlemen choose to accost you i shall think you do rightly to retort but for heaven's sake do not begin the attack vincent's impetuosity was not to be restrained he demanded from sir philip whether he was the person who had beaten his servant sir philip readily obliged him with an answer in the affirmative and the consequence was the loss of a finger to the baronet and a wound in the side to mr vincent which though it did not endanger his life yet confined him to his room for several days the impatience of his mind increased his fever and retarded his recovery when belinda's first alarm for mr vincent's safety was over she anxiously questioned lord delacour as to the particulars of all that had passed between mr vincent and sir philip that she might judge of the manner in which her lover had conducted himself lord delacour who was a man of strict truth was compelled to confess that mr vincent had shown more spirit than temper and more courage than prudence lady delacour rejoiced to perceive that this account made belinda uncommonly serious mr vincent now thought himself sufficiently recovered to leave his room his physicians indeed would have kept him prisoner a few days longer but he was too impatient of restraint to listen to their counsels juba tell the doctor when he comes that you could not keep me at home and that is all that is necessary to be said he had now summoned courage to acknowledge to belinda all that had happened and was proceeding with difficulty downstairs when he was suddenly struck by the sound of a voice which he little expected at this moment 
a voice he had formerly been accustomed to hear with pleasure, but now it smote him to the heart. It was the voice of Mr. Percival. For the first time in his life he wished to deny himself to his friend. The recollection of the E.O. table, of Mrs. Lutridge, of Mr. Percival as his guardian, and of all the advice he had heard from him as his friend, rushed upon his mind at this instant. Conscious and ashamed, he shrunk back, precipitately returned to his own room, and threw himself into a chair, breathless with agitation. He listened, expecting to hear Mr. Percival coming upstairs, and endeavoured to compose himself, that he might not betray, by his own agitation, all that he wished most anxiously to conceal. After waiting for some time, he rang the bell to make inquiries. The waiter told him that a Mr. Percival had asked for him, but having been told by his black that he was just gone out, the gentleman being, as he said, much hurried, had left a note for an answer to which he would call at eight o'clock in the evening. Vincent was glad of this short reprieve. Alas, thought he, how changed am I, when I fear to meet my best friend. To what has this one fatal propensity reduced me? He was little aware of the new difficulties that awaited him. Mr. Percival's note was as follows. My dear friend, am not I a happy man to find a friend in my sedevant ward? But I have no time for sentiment, nor does it become the character in which I am now writing to you. That of a dun. You are so rich and so prudent that the word in capital letters cannot frighten you. Lady Anne's cousin, poor Mr. Carrisford, is dead. I am guardian to his boys. They are but ill provided for. I have fortunately obtained a partnership in a good house for the second son. Ten thousand pounds are wanting to establish him. We cannot raise the money amongst us without dunning poor Mr. Vincent. Enclosed is your bond for the purchase money of the little estate you bought from me last summer. I know that you have doubled the sum we want in ready money, so I make no ceremony. Let me have the ten thousand this evening, if you can, as I wish to leave town as soon as possible. Yours most sincerely. Henry Percival. Now Mr. Vincent had lost, and had actually paid to Mrs. Lutridge the ready money which had been destined to discharge his debt to Mr. Percival. He expected fresh remittances from the West Indies in the course of a few weeks, but in the meantime he must raise this money immediately. This he could only do by having recourse to Jews, a desperate expedient. The Jew to whom he applied no sooner discovered that Mr. Vincent was under a necessity of having this sum before eight o'clock in the evening, then he became exorbitant in his demands, and the more impatient this unfortunate young man became, the more difficulties he raised. At last a bargain was concluded between them, in which Vincent knew that he was grossly imposed upon, but to this he submitted, for he had no alternative. The Jew promised to bring him ten thousand pounds at five o'clock in the evening, but it was half after seven before he made his appearance and then he was so dilatory and circumspect in reading over and signing the bounds and in completing the formalities of the transaction that before the money was actually in vincent's possession one of the waiters of the hotel knocked at the door to let him know that mr percival was coming upstairs vincent hurried the jew into an adjoining apartment and bid him wait there till he should come to finish the business though totally unsuspicious mr percival could not help being struck with the perturbation in which he found his young friend Vincent immediately began to talk of the duel, and his friend was led to conclude that his anxiety arose from this affair. 
he endeavoured to put him at ease by changing the conversation. He spoke of the business which brought him to town, and of the young man whom he was going to place with the banker. "'I hope,' said he, observing that Vincent grew more embarrassed, "'that my dunning you for this money is not really inconvenient. Not in the least. Not in the least. I have the money ready in a few moments. If you'll be so good as to wait here, I have the money ready in the next room.' At this instant a loud noise was heard, the raised voices of two people quarrelling. It was Juba the Black and Solomon the Jew. Mr. Vincent had sent Juba out of the way on some errand whilst he had been transacting his affairs with the Jew, but the Black, having executed the commission on which he had been sent, returned and went into his master's bedchamber to read at his leisure a letter which he had just received from his wife. He did not at first see the Jew, and he was spelling out the words of his wife's letter. "'My dear Juba, I take this opportunity,' he would have said. But the Jew, who had held his breath in to avoid discovery till he could hold it no longer, now drew it so loud that Juba started, looked around, and saw the feet of a man, which appeared beneath the bottom of the window-curtain. Where fears of supernatural appearances were out of the question, our negro was a man of courage.' He had no doubt that the man who was concealed behind the curtain was a robber. But the idea of a robber did not unnerve him, like that of an obia woman, with presence of mind worthy of a greater danger. Juba took down his master's pistol, which hung over the chimney-piece, and marching deliberately up to the enemy, he seized the Jew by the throat, exclaiming, "'You rob my massa! You dead man, if you rob my massa!' Terrified at the sight of the pistol, the Jew instantly explained who he was, and producing his large purse, assured Juba that he was come to lend money, and not to take it from his master. But this appeared highly improbable to Juba, who believed his master to be the richest man in the world. Besides, the Jew's language was scarcely intelligible to him, and he saw secret terror in Solomon's countenance. Solomon had an antipathy to the sight of a black, and he shrunk from the negro with strong signs of aversion. Juba would not relinquish his hold. Each went on talking in his own angry gibberish as loud as he could, till at last the negro fairly dragged the Jew into the presence of his master and Mr. Percival. It is impossible to describe Mr. Vincent's confusion, or Mr. Percival's astonishment. The Jew's explanation was perfectly intelligible to him. He saw at once all the truth. Vincent, overwhelmed with shame, stood the picture of despair, incapable of uttering a single syllable. "'There is no necessity to borrow this money on my account,' said Mr. Percival calmly. "'And if there were,' We could probably have it on more reasonable terms than this gentleman proposes. I care not on what terms I have it. I care not what becomes of me. I am undone, cried Vincent. Mr. Percival coolly dismissed the Jew, made a sign to Juba to leave the room, and then, addressing himself to Vincent, said, I can borrow the money that I want elsewhere. Fear no reproaches from me. I foresaw all this. You have lost this sum at play. It is well that it was not your whole fortune. I have only one question to ask you, on which depends my esteem. Have you informed Miss Portman of this affair? I have not yet told her, but I was actually half downstairs in my way to tell her. Then, Mr. Vincent, you are still my friend. I know the difficulty of such an avowal, but it is necessary. Cannot you, dear Mr. Percival, save me the intolerable shame of confessing my own folly? Spare me this mortification. Be yourself the bearer of this intelligence, and the mediator in my favour. "'I will with pleasure,' said Mr. Percival. "'I will go this instant, but I cannot say 
that i have any hope of persuading belinda to believe in your being irrevocably reclaimed from the charms of play indeed my excellent friend she may rely upon me i feel such horror at the past such heartfelt resolution against all future temptation that you may pledge yourself for my total reformation mr percival promised that he would exert all his influence except by pledging his own honour to this he could not consent if i have any good news for you i will return as soon as possible but i will not be the bearer of any painful intelligence said he and he departed leaving mr vincent in a state of anxiety which to his temper was a punishment sufficient for almost any imprudence he could have committed mr percival returned no more that night the next morning mr vincent received the following letter from belinda he guessed his fate he had scarcely power to read the words i promised you that whenever my own mind should be decided i would not hold yours in suspense yet at this moment i find it difficult to keep my word instead of lamenting as you have often done that my esteem for your many excellent qualities never rose beyond the bounds of friendship we have now reason to rejoice at this since it will save us much useless pain it spares me the difficulty of conquering a passion that might be fatal to my happiness and it will diminish the regret which you may feel at our separation i am now obliged to say that circumstances have made me certain we could not add to our mutual felicity by any nearer connection the hope of enjoying domestic happiness with a person whose manners temper and tastes suited my own inclined me to listen to your addresses but this happiness i could never enjoy with one who has any propensity to the love of play for my sake as well as for yours i rejoice that your fortune has not been materially injured as this relieves me from the fear that my present conduct should be imputed to interested motives indeed such is the generosity of your own temper that in any situation i should scarcely have reason to apprehend from you such a suspicion the absolute impossibility of my forming at present a connection with another will prevent you from imagining that i am secretly influenced by sentiments different from those which i avow nor can any weak doubts on this subject expose me to my own reproaches you perceive sir that i am not willing utterly to lose your esteem even when i renounce in the most unequivocal manner all claim upon your affections if anything should appear to you harsh in this letter i beg you to impute it to the real cause my desire to spare you all painful suspense by convincing you at once that my determination is irrevocable with sincere wishes for your happiness i bid you farewell belinda portman a few hours after mr vincent had read this letter he threw himself into a post-chaise and set out for germany he saw that all hopes of being united to belinda were over and he hurried as far from her as possible her letter rather soothed than irritated his temper her praises of his generosity were highly gratifying and they had so powerful an effect upon his mind that he was determined to prove that they were deserved his conscience reproached him with not having made sufficiently honourable mention of clarence hervey's conduct on the night when he was on the point of destroying himself before he left london he wrote a full account of this whole transaction to be given to miss portman after his departure belinda was deeply touched by this proof of his generosity his letter his farewell letter she could not read without great emotion it was written with true feeling but in a manly style without one word of vain lamentation what a pity thought belinda that with so many good and great qualities i should be forced to bid him adieu for ever 
though she strongly felt the pain of this separation yet she could not recede from her decision nothing could tempt her to connect herself with a man who had the fatal taste for play even mr percival much as he loved his ward much as he wished for his union with belinda dared not pledge his honour for mr vincent on this point lady anne percival in a very kind and sensible letter expressed the highest approbation of belinda's conduct and the most sincere hope that belinda would still continue to think of her with affection and esteem though she had been so rash in her advice and though her friendship had been apparently so selfish end of chapter twenty nine recorded by terra mendoza phoenix arizona march two thousand eleven